Where is your hope? I'm not asking, what do you hope for? Because that makes us think of things we wish would happen or things we wish we could have. But I'm asking, where is your hope? When things are going really well, but you're struck by the sense that this can't last, this won't last, where is your hope then? Or when things are dark, when everything seems to be going wrong, when so much has already gone wrong that you can't imagine it being set right in this life, or perhaps you're realizing there's no way I'm going to live to see this put right, where is your hope then? What are you putting your hope in, in other words, beyond this life? Beyond what's going on right now, where is your hope? The New Testament is clear about where our hope is as Christians. Right? Nobody, can, nobody can live without some kind of hope. Right? Nobody can, can go on in dark and trying circumstances without some kind of hope. But we as Christians have a particular kind of hope. A hope that we are to take hold of. A hope that has taken hold of us. And that hope, of course, most, uh, at the most basic level, is in God. Right? Our hope is in God. But we can be more specific than that. What has God promised to do? What hope has God given to us for the future? Part of the answer to that question, a, a huge part of the answer, a significant part of the answer, is He has given us the hope of resurrection. He has given us the hope of bodily life, bodily resurrection for the future. Resurrection promised by the Father, secured by the Son, and brought to pass by the power of the Holy Spirit. Resurrection meaning He will take our mortal bodies and He will raise them and make them immortal bodies. We need to be raised from the dead because God has promised that we are going to go to dwell with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. A physical place where we will dwell in the presence of God. So resurrection, new creation, the presence of God forever, that is our hope. And we get a glimpse of that hope as far back as places like Ezekiel 37 in the New Testament, where we read from earlier. But it comes to full flower in the New Testament. And in Romans 8, where we're going to be looking this morning, in Romans 8, uh, Romans 8 is a chapter full of hope. And in the verses we're going to look at, in particular this morning, verses 9 to 11, it is a chapter that focuses on the hope of resurrection, again, through the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 8. I'll read for us verses 9 to 11. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh... But in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So when we uh, look at verse 9, right, we are jumping into the middle of something Big. So we need to kind of back up for a second and remind ourselves of what Paul has been talking about in the last several verses. In the first part of Romans chapter 8, Paul is contrasting those who live in the flesh and those who live in the spirit. Those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. And he has said that uh, Christians are those who walk according to the spirit, who have their minds set on the spirit. And that is why the Christians fulfill the law of God, that we actually live in accordance with what God has uh, called us to do, designed us to do, and the reason we're able to do that is because Jesus has taken our condemnation upon himself, died in our place for our sin, secured our salvation, and sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, who set us free from the power of sin and death so that we can now walk in new life and fulfill the law. But those who walk in the flesh can't do that. Those who live according to the flesh, who are uh, left in the flesh, which just means that they are still living in the um, uh, with lives dominated by all that has gone wrong because of Adam's sin back in the garden. They are fallen. They are broken. They are living under the power of sin and death that we were under before Jesus saved us and the Spirit set us free. So Paul says those who are in the flesh still, who have not been redeemed, who are not in Christ, they have their minds set on the things of the flesh, and as a result, they cannot please God. They cannot submit to God's law. It's impossible for them to do the things that God wanted, wants them to do, which doesn't mean they're off the hook for those things. It just means they're stuck unless God rescues them, unless God saves them. That's why Paul and so many others are so eager to preach the gospel to people all around the world because we know that our only hope for salvation, for new life, for fellowship with God, for forgiveness of sin is if we hear what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection, if we respond by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ, and then we receive the Holy Spirit, if that doesn't happen, we're stuck in sin and in the flesh and there's no hope for us. Our only hope is in Christ and in His Spirit and in our Father who sent the Son and sent the Spirit. So that's that's what Paul's been talking about. The significance of the difference between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. And in verse 9, he says to the believers he's writing to at the church in Rome, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And I suspect, though I can't prove it, I suspect that part of the reason why Paul says this is he knows that many of us are prone to doubt that we really belong to the Lord, that our lives have really been changed by him, that we've really been saved. And so as he was lining out in verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 what it looks like for those who are in the flesh, I suspect that Paul was thinking, you know, there are probably some believers who are going to be listening to these verses, and these verses are not about them, but they're going to think that they are about them. 
They're going to think I'm talking about them, but I'm not. So in verse 9, he says, okay, now I told you what is true of those who are in the flesh, how they can't please God, they can't submit to God's law, they can't do the things God wants them to do. But I'm telling you, believers, that's not you. I'm not talking about you when I say that because you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Meaning, what Paul is talking about here is not, you know, sometimes we will say, um, yeah, I remember I had a, a, a pastor who would say, uh, you know, if he, I remember talking about him, him and his wife one time, and he said, uh, if one of us is in the flesh and the other one's in the spirit, we can work things out. But if we're both in the flesh, things go bad, right? What he meant by that is if we're both, uh, you know, sinning and we're both not listening to the Lord and we're both not doing what we're going to say, we're, we're going to end up in some kind of conflict. But if at least one of us is, you know, doing what we're supposed to be doing, then we can sort of overlook the sins against us and whatever. So sometimes we talk about being in the flesh or in the spirit in terms of like how we're living right now, what we're doing. Are we doing fleshly things or are we doing spiritual things? That's not how Paul is using this language here. Right? It's not to say he can't talk that way other places, but here that's not what he means. Here he's talking about are you in the flesh constantly, permanently, that's your identity unless God saves you in the future? Or are you in the Spirit, meaning you have a new identity, you're now in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, and he's saying to the believers at the church, you are in the Spirit. You now have a new life, a new identity, dominated not by your sinful nature that you inherited from Adam, but now dominated by the Holy Spirit of God Himself, who has set you free and has come to dwell in you. So he says, you are in the Spirit, you are not in the flesh, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So if you have the Holy Spirit in you at all, Paul says, then you are in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Uh, And then he says, the second half of the verse, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Okay, so there's not, there's not sort of, there's not like two categories, like Christians who trust Jesus but don't have the Holy Spirit. And then another category of Christians who do trust Jesus and also have the Holy Spirit and are therefore on like a, another plane and more spiritual and more godly and all those things. No, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. If you don't belong to Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you belong to Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. There's no one and not the other. right? They go together. Always go together. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you belong to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, then the Spirit of God is in you and you are in the Spirit. And this is not... A unique teaching to Romans chapter 8. This is something we find all over the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19 and 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, In him you also, when you, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. That does not mean that you have necessarily had some kind of flashy, visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence. Doesn't mean you've spoken tongues or you know, performed some kind of miracle or anything like that. That doesn't have to have happened for you to have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The New Testament is clear that everybody who trusts in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit, but not everybody who receives the Holy Spirit has those flashy signs. Sometimes that happened in the Bible. Uh, We can debate whether or not that sometimes happens today, but even in the time of the New Testament, it didn't happen to everybody. So how do we know then if we have the Holy Spirit? Right? Besides just sort of the logical connection of, I know I've trusted in Jesus, therefore I must have the Holy Spirit. That's true. But if that leaves you wondering still, like, well, what if, I, what if I don't know if I've really trusted in Jesus? I mean, I think I have, but what if I don't know if I have? What if I'm, what if I'm wondering if I have the Holy Spirit? How do I know? Is there some kind of evidence that can assure me that I really have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. There is, and I, I want to point you to two evidences just real quickly. The first one comes just a few verses later in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. All right, this may be one you haven't thought much about before, but it's significant and I think it's helpful. Romans eight fifteen, Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, what does that mean? He says we have received, if we're Christians, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, meaning the spirit himself has come into us, come upon us, and we have been designated and and made children of God, sons of God. And he says it's by this spirit of adoption, we've been adopted by God and received his spirit and become his children. It's by this spirit that we cry out to God, Abba, Father. Now, you probably don't use the word Abba very much. That's okay. But if you pray to God with sincerity, calling him Father. Where did you get that? Where does that come from? Where, where, does that, where does that confidence, where does that conviction, even if you've not thought about it, where does that recognition that God is your Father and you can call upon Him in prayer, where does that come from? Paul's saying that comes from the presence of the Spirit in us. Right? So anybody can be taught to pray you know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. Anybody can say the words, you know, our Father, or call God Father. So, just to be able to say it doesn't necessarily signal that you have the Holy Spirit. But, here's, here's what I'm saying, here's what, here's what Paul's saying. If you find yourself in trouble, in distress, in, in a concerning situation, um, and your sort of gut reaction, your reflex is to say, Father, help me. 
God, I know I'm yours. Where are you? I need you. And it's not sort of this like, hey, I know maybe there's a God up there somewhere, and if you're there, would you help me? I'm not saying that's a bad kind of prayer, but that's not the kind of prayer that, that Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying, if you're calling on God as Father, if you have this inner conviction, maybe you haven't even really thought much about it, but you, you look back and you recognize, you have this inner conviction that God is your Father, that you belong to Him, that He hears you when you pray, that's the Holy Spirit. Not everybody prays like that. Not everybody has that conviction, that confidence. And I'm not saying you have to have it every single time you pray. Even believers sometimes have times where they wonder if God's listening, if God hears. But if this is a part of your life, that you have this confidence, this assurance, that you can call upon God as your Father, that's the work of the Spirit. So that's one evidence that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The other one I want to point you to is the, the one we hear about all the time. The, it's fairly common. It's the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is inside of you, you're going to have a life that is increasingly characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Doesn't mean you never sin. Doesn't mean you're never impatient. Doesn't mean you never lack self-control. But do you have those things and are you increasing in those things? And if you are, that's a sign of the Spirit's presence. And just like I said last week, sometimes the best thing to do, if you're wondering if you have those fruits, is ask somebody who knows you well. Maybe even ask somebody who has known you before you were saved, or maybe not long after you were saved, and has watched you grow, and and say, have you seen evidence of this in me? I'm not fishing for compliments, I really want to know. And if they're a good friend, they'll be honest with you, and they'll tell you, and and probably they're going to say, I, I mean, I can't even believe you're asking me that question. Yes, your life is filled with the fruit of the Spirit. So those are a couple of ways that you can see evidence that the Spirit does in fact dwell in you. And this is a huge deal, right? Knowing that you're in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. And here's why. Verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now notice, this, this may have slipped by you, but it's, it's important. Notice that in verse 9, first Paul says, the Spirit. And then he says, the Spirit of God. And then he says, the Spirit of Christ. And then he, in verse 10 he just says, but if Christ is in you. So he says, if you're in the Spirit... In verse 9, and then he talks about the Spirit of God dwelling in you, and then the Spirit of having the Spirit of Christ, and then he just says, if Christ is in you, is he talking about like three different things, or is he talking about the same thing? It is the same thing. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ, is the Holy Spirit. Those are just three ways of talking about the same Holy Spirit. And if the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, then if the Spirit of Christ comes to dwell in you, guess what? He brings Jesus with Him. Right? Christ dwells with you and in you as well. So all of that is about the same thing. right? And so he says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. What does he mean by that? Well, we know that the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. And we even know from Romans chapter 5 that it was Adam's sin that opened the gate for death to come into the world. And the reason why there is death is because of sin. And we know that even though we have been forgiven of our sin, we are still going to suffer the consequences of sin by experiencing physical death at the end of our life if Jesus doesn't come back first. 
Right, so our bodies are in one sense as good as dead. Right? They are already dying and one day will die if Jesus does not come back. That's just reality. There are many, many ways that our culture tries to get us to avoid thinking about that. Right? And, and many ways that our culture hides that fact from us. But death is a reality for everybody. Our body is dead, and the reason why is because of sin. This is probably at least part of what Paul had in mind back at the end of chapter 7 when he said, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Not only am I experiencing sin in my present life, but I know that this body is going to die. Who's going to rescue me from this mess of sin and death? Paul answers the question here in verses 10 and 11. He says, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So the Spirit of God who is in you, He is life. The Spirit gives life. The Spirit brings life. The Spirit causes life. The Spirit is life, and the Spirit is in you. And so even though your body is going to die, you have the living God dwelling in you. That's got to mean good things. Now, why is uh, the Spirit life in us? He says, because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Clearly not our righteousness. Right? The, the Spirit is not in us because we've done righteous things. <coughs> Excuse me. The Spirit is not in us because we are righteous people. Right? The Spirit is in us because of the righteousness of Christ that has been counted as ours. Right? Here's how one Bible teacher puts it. He says, righteousness here, in this verse, refers to the gift of righteousness granted to believers by virtue of the work of Christ. And what he's talking about is what Paul has said in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, that we are justified, we're counted righteous by faith, just like Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's chapter 4. We have been made righteous by Jesus' one act of righteousness, his death on the cross. That's Romans chapter 5. By His righteousness, His obedience, His death, His resurrection, by trusting in Him and what He's accomplished, now we have been made righteous. And because we are righteous in Christ, now the Spirit is in us, and the Spirit is life in us. And that's good news for us. (coughs) Why is that good news for us? Verse 11, here's the crescendo, here's the climax. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the problem is, you have a body corrupted and affected by sin that is going to die. But the good news is, because of what Jesus has done for you, the Spirit who is life has come to dwell inside of you. Now, that right there captures the tension between 
death and life, sin and uh, the flesh on the one hand, and spirit and righteousness on the other from chapter 6 and chapter 7. Where is all this leading? You've got a mortal body affected by sin that's going to die. You've got the spirit who is life dwelling in you. Where is this going? Well, Paul says, remember, who raised Jesus from the dead? God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And who is the Holy Spirit? Where, where did He come from? Well, He's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit who God the Father sent to dwell inside of us. So if the God who raised Jesus by the dead, from the dead sent His Spirit to dwell inside of us, then the God who raised Jesus from the dead is also going to raise us from the dead by the same Spirit. Right, that's what he's saying there at the beginning. He, at the end, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's resurrection. He will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In other words, you will be raised from the dead by the Spirit who's already in you. So, who will deliver me from this body of death? God the Father, through His Son, whom He sent to die in my place and take my sin and rise from the dead, securing my salvation on the third day, who also sent the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of me, to set me free from sin, to set me free from death, and through whom He will one day raise my body from the dead to be no longer mortal, but immortal, to dwell in His presence forever. That's why it's so important to know that you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That's why it's so important to know that every person who belongs to Jesus has the Spirit of God dwelling in Him. Because if the Spirit of the God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, guess what? He's going to raise you from the dead as well. Now with those few verses, we have only begun to taste and see the hope that is held out for us in Romans chapter 8. Hope not only of resurrection from the dead, but hope of the redemption of our bodies, hope of the redemption of the entire creation. Hope that our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three have been, are, and will be at work in us and on our behalf to bring about for us the fullest redemption, the fullest salvation possible. That's where our hope is, in the good times and in the bad. We know beyond this life, we have the hope of eternal, resurrected life in the presence of God our Savior. Let's pray.